So we had um, quite a good rundown on macro. Um, I mean, they're selling an emerging market fund and then bullish emerging market. Markets. I mean, funny enough, they are bullish. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it was yeah, it was good actually. It was good. It must be good because um, I've come out of there very build up on emerging markets, which is usually the way of things, right? I uh, I was in a meeting this morning with an analyst, uh, collectors analyst, who was also bullish emerging markets. Yeah. Was it our emerging and Asian market analyst? No, it wasn't actually. <laughs> it was somebody else. What was the What was the TLDR? Uh, they're really cheap. You they can are buy good stocks cheap. on single digits. China's on eight times. Mm. Bit of uh, political risk. Bit of political risk. Bit of property ownership rights rights confiscation type risk. Well, the, funnily enough, the EM manager did mention this. He said, I mean, it's not like uh, they're about to steal all the AT1s off their largest bank. <laughs> <laughs> no, only the Swiss do that. <laughs> exactly. <sighs> I mean, give it five years, people will be buying that stuff again, like it's going out of fashion. People have got very short memories. They're yielding 10, 12%, though. The Cocos? Hmm. Okay, explain what a Cocoa is. Um, what well, con- con- contingent convertible or convertible contingent? Basically, it's a bond, and it's like a normal bond, except if the bank goes through a liquidity event and they convert to equity. Yeah. But the problem for Credit Suisse was that in the prospectus of the Credit Suisse AT1s, they had the ability to write them down to zero and not give them any equity. The problem was no one had read the prospectus properly. No. Well, who does? I, d- I, read, I read prospectus starts start to back up for every stock I ever invested in. Um, so <laughs> I think the Swiss banks are the only ones that had that clause in, interestingly. Have you got your teams off this week? I have. No, no one's ringing me against no the calls for ones. Yeah. Cool. Right, let's get stuck in. Um, welcome, episode four, taking stock after the bell, although we're a little bit earlier this week, so not after the bell, during the bell, before the bell. Um, Jonathan Raymond, investment manager. James Hughes, investment yeah. manager, and better or worse, Dave Henry, investment manager. Um, how are we doing, fellas? Tax year end stuff all sorted? All done, and mm. it's a delight. I had it's a been a stressful few weeks. Yeah. I did have a SIP contribution yesterday, but we did manage to get the forms done and the payment made, I'm hoping. So everything's done. But we start the new year. It's always good to start the new tax year, isn't it? We've done the work. Wealth Management Christmas, the last day of it the is. tax year. No, it is. And then you can, you can, is it Thursday, is it the 5th or 6th? You can go around saying Happy New Year to everyone. This is the best joke in the world. Worst More banter like world. that, stay tuned. Uh, right, OPEC. <laughs> OPEC, uh, cut by five. The Saudis cut by half a billion barrels a day, wasn't mm. it? Um, so we've seen a little bit of a pop there in the oil price. You can see on that chart is oil price after the la- over the last 12 months. We've had a little bit of a wiggle uh, in the last couple of weeks. Um, first up, does th- does this matter? It's quite it's quite interesting because the there's been quite a lot of pushback, hasn't there, on them essentially causing the Western inflation problem again. But the US have obviously been releasing reserves, and they were quite clear when they started releasing reserves that when the price of oil fell below, I think it was $75, they'd stop doing it, back, yeah. and they just haven't. No, they so had a chance to start, they were going to start buying back, when they, to refill the reserves, which they didn't quite manage to do. No. So, 
maybe this, uh, I don't know, I mean it's potentially quite a defensive move by OPEC plus and the Saudis to try and hold the price up, recession risk, and that's why the oil price has fallen quite materially in the last oh. 12 months, right? or 6 months certainly, is because people are worried about recession and recession is not good for oil demand. Um, so explain, you know, for people that might not be familiar with what OPEC is, what, what it is, what, how they control basically the oil market. Mm, is it about 40% of the oil market? OPEC control plus, but maybe it's 50. Yeah, so it's yeah. basically Saudi Arabia, um, Iraq, Iran, Libya, Egypt, Egypt, uh, Russia, and somebody else Vietnam? in there as well. Is yeah, no, sorry, and um, um, Venezuela. Venezuela. And they're effectively a cartel, so they have a quota each as to how much oil they can produce on a monthly, annual basis. And global oil demand is about 100 million barrels a day, and they so a one and a half million barrel cut is one and a half percent out of global supply, which is not immaterial, but it should bring the market back into balance in the short term. That's the idea, which is why the price has firmed up, what nearly 10 percent in the last week. So, uh, but the price is still way down on where it was even six months ago. So yeah, and I've, as we've discussed, we were talking about this on the desk this morning. Um, I was speaking to my colleague Sam about it, and I can't remember which podcast podcast he was listening to, but this idea was floated. If the problem over the last six to twelve months has been services inflation rather than goods inflation, and this is a little bit of goods inflation, we all know what a knock-on impact there is in the U.S. consumer with higher gas, gas prices. prices. Yeah. Maybe this is actually deflationary. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, it, it's often discussed like that, isn't it? Higher gas prices is deflationary because it leaves less money in people's pockets to spend on mm. going out and having fun. As we've discussed in the podcast. cost of funds, the problem. Cost Get the cost of, fun. of goods back up again. Maybe yeah. that'll be the problem again. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult for me to see. Extra unless this obviously becomes something bigger than it is, it doesn't really feel like a massive deal to me no, necessarily. Not no, I don't. It hasn't. It hasn't majorly moved markets, um, with the exception of some of our all majors, which. Um, it was quite nice to see them pop yesterday. We'll, we'll get on to those in a second because mm. I think there's there's something interesting to pick out there with, mm. with the oil stocks. Um, James, I think it was maybe you shared this chart, the commodities, the equity, basically. Mm. Um, we seem to go through or have gone through cycles since 1970 of commodities doing much better than stocks. Yeah. That reversing and that trend yeah. seems to keep happening and obviously the implication from this is that we're at a bit of an inflection point again. Um, well, I think I'm not, I'm I'm surprised that line isn't higher. Actually, I know. I but if you think, I mean, we've just been to a meeting with an EM manager, and we were talking about the cost of oil or the cost of fuel as a percentage of global GDP. I mean, that that's massively come down. I think it was, I think the figure was seven percent in in the noughties and it's something like 3%. Yeah, 33 Yeah, but, but actually, if you look at this chart, it, you know, we literally just discussed it, it sort of goes in tandem with what's being produced and which businesses are in vogue. Where, you know, you've just, you've just had a period um, where essentially you need very little capex spend to create the next application or you know tech business or whatever else and actually the building stuff there's been very little um, if you look at where commodity prices have been I think that peak is is that 2009-ish so, uh, actually if you, if you look at that period there to where we are today it's all been about the mega tech businesses and, and intangibles yeah intangibles. It, it, exactly whereas 
I think where we are today, and we were just talking about, you know, the, the need of copper um, for electric cars and, and 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 you know lithium for batteries, and and you know there's potentially some um, reshoring of businesses. Actually, I think that capex spend and the businesses associated with them um, that you know it has every chance of increasing because as we build stuff out again, actually proper you know properly build. But it's manufacturing or, or buildings or um, you know or mining for materials. Um, you know, you're likely you know the, the view from here looking at that chart is the price of commodities compared to equities um, should rise. And actually a different type and we, we spoke about it in our first podcast. <coughs> you know, our view is the next ten years will look very different to the last ten years in terms of the type of businesses that drove those returns. This is all part um, of it, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. If that you know, if this is a turning point and commodities start outperforming the equity markets, then portfolios will look very different. Interest rates are going to be higher, inflation is going to be higher, um, and we need to do different things. Yeah. Um, and obviously, the last time we had this driven down, where from where commodities were very expensive to where there was a tech bubble, it is exactly the same sequence of events as has been the case from two thousand and nine to where we are. You know, you, you had. The next dot coms, you had the, you know, the exactly um, AOLs and whatever else in the in the last one, um, and this one is is quite similar. You know, it was however many companies that produce with with um, massive valuations with no revenue. I, mean, I don't think it's a done deal that commodities start outperforming from here. It's not, you know, this is just that. This is a sort of us positing and theorising as to how the next ten years look, look. Yeah. and lots of evidence does suggest that we're going to go through a. Lombard, T.S. Lombard call it the tangible twenties. You know, back to building stuff, energy um, transition, climate change. I like that. But also, um, and we've had the intangible tens, right, with the Microsofts and the Amazons. It's it's a nice, neat theory that fits around lots of these sorts of charts. It's not a done deal. Jay has just said what I babbled about for the last two minutes and about ten seconds in a far more succinct way. So we should just (laughs) listen to what he said. (laughs) That's that's the point I was going to bring up next. I feel like I don't know whether it's just recency bias or just me think you know noticing this more and more. It seems to me more when you're talking about investing. There's two sides of things. So there's tangibles versus intangibles. There's growth versus value. There's tech versus non-tech. People feel very polarized between mm. those two camps. Is that a re- do we think you know not quite honest to be that's a bit much but do we think you know social media the ability to be people online has has made people more more polarized in their opinion which i think is a pretty dangerous thing to be as an investor i mean certainly the the bots behind it all <laughs> will, will push you down a rabbit hole as as we all know when you're sitting there for a quick scroll of the phone and two hours later you're uh, in somewhere very different <laughs> to where you started <laughs> oh, <dear>. <laughs> moving on <laughs> uh, um, i don't know i mean uh, human nature though is right we, we want to be able to we want to be able to bet on an outcome. We want to sound intelligent. And we yeah. want to make predictions that sound smart. And um, uh, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be that way. We can think. I, I try and like to think in terms of probabilities. So there's a chance that that environment of regime change that we've talked about, the tangible twenties, mm. comes to pass. There's a chance it doesn't. So, well, how does the portfolio? How do how do portfolios look to try and balance off those risks and those probabilities? That's how I like to think about it, rather than. We should be all in on Shell and Rio Tinto and China and EM. 
because lines on a chart in it. I think it's a bit. I know, and it but doesn't work out, and all of a sudden you're a forced yeah. seller of something that hasn't yeah. done well, which is the whole point. But of I think I think again that makes a lot of sense as to why we manage portfolios in the way we do. You know, we think about we think about regions. We take the US, and we want within that to have our best growth manager, our best value manager, you know, our 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 best manager at a barbell approach that runs, you know, has has a view on that as well. And then we can overlay it with certain thematics, um, you know, albeit in small position sizes, but whether that's a global energy transition fund or a, or a specific healthcare or, you know, whatever else each mm. individual investment manager would like to do. But we certainly think about, you know, as we know, Running a portfolio on a on a very balanced basis because it is impo- as we know it's impossible to predict for certain what is going to happen. I think we probably lean towards the same way in terms of the next ten years will look very different to the last ten, but th- there's nothing certain about that, which is why we still have positions in the very good mega kind of tech businesses, albeit probably smaller than we might have done previously. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, oil stocks, so uh, these are the four oil majors, um, Shell, BP, Chevron, Exxon, the blue line is the oil price. Um, there's a bit of a disconnect that's opened up here, I wrote about this in January and if anything it's got a wee bit wider. Um, well, first of all, why do you think the oil stocks are outperforming the commodity, first of all? Well they probably underperformed the commodity before didn't they? I don't know. I'm just this is a sort of bit of bit of reverse from B- twenty. Yeah. yeah. BP. BP. Yeah, because BP and Shell collapsed with the oil price yeah. post COVID, and the oil price recovered, and BP and Shell didn't really recover yeah. for a while. Yeah. And now they've gone on a a tear. So there's a little bit of catch up, and I think there's probably a bit more confidence. I mean, this is a spot oil price, right? And very few oil companies sell a lot of oil at yeah. the spot price. So if you've got to look and at the, the future futures price, curve hasn't moved. Future curve hasn't much. moved. So. Yeah, and they, I think actually the majors track the future curve far more closely than the spot curve. Mm. I know Jamie spent a lot of time, oil and gas analyst internally, spent a lot of time talking to us about that. Um, um, but yeah, they, I mean, looking at this chart, there is a big disconnect on the, on the spot price. But I think, in, you know, in truth, if we turn the clock back, clocks back to March, April last year, you know Russia had been in Ukraine for a month or so. Could any of us have predicted that the oil price would be where it is, based on supply constraints and tariffs? And it's quite—I mean, it certainly has surprised me mm. how low it's been and it was, how. Well, it was the peak, wasn't it? Pretty much. One, yeah. One twenty, one thirty. Yeah. Um, but I think you know the the oil majors look a lot more investable again because dividends, cash flow, buybacks. That's I think that's the key point here. You don't need the oil price to mm. go boogaloo for oil stocks to do well. Nope. They were too cheap to begin with. Mm. Cash flow has become sexy in inverted commas well, it's again. Jam today. It's a jam today story, isn't it? Jam today rather yeah. than jam tomorrow. I think the other thing is, remember, they reset their dividends during COVID and they haven't been nearly as quick to... We ran Shell cut their dividend for the first time since the old years. Yeah. yeah, since the Second World War, wasn't it? I think. Yep. But they haven't reset it as a percentage of share price. That dividend yield as a percentage is not nearly as high as it was, no. and I think that's quite important because there's much better coverage in terms of dividend cover of that payment, but also 
there is additional cash flow which they can reinvest in renewables and the energy transition which I think for the ball case is incredibly important. Um, there's obviously buybacks in there as well. I mean, what is it? Shell's probably four percent. Did the yield slightly yeah. under? Probably another eight yeah. percent of buybacks, yeah. which can obviously be turned off and, and on much quicker than um, than dividend payments. Um, so, you know, total shareholder return theoretically is from from dividends and buybacks is is a bit under twelve percent, which. Mm-hmm. Which is much larger actually than the U.S. peers um, share from the next one. I think there's one other factor at play here. You know, for people that do a job similar to us, if you're looking at a portfolio during 2020 and looking at things that zigged while most other things zagged, oil and gas is probably one obvious area. Mm. Maybe there's a bit of that in the price. If you're looking for something that's going to do okay in a similar environment to last year. I personally don't expect a similar environment to last year, but if you are, then the oil and gas would be a natural sort of place to play. Yeah, I think I think in previous cycles they've been quite wasteful of capital as well, made very bad acquisitions, um, overpaid for assets. Typically, at peak of market, you know, when 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 markets are, are peaking, and I think this year shareholders have, well, not this year, but this time round, I think. They're being more protective over the capital. I think shareholders have put more pressure on not to make those big wasteful acquisitions, mm. and also they don't want to buy, you know, essentially expensive exploration when we all see an end of oil and gas use. You know, mm. whether that's twenty years or thirty years, but instead of doing that, there's money being invested into, as we just said, into renewables and actually an energy transition, a different world to where we sit today. Um, I saw a chart not that long ago, and I might be able to dig it out, but it was of oil and gas, listed oil and gas majors, total capex is down 75% from where it was in 2015, in real right? terms. So they're spending 75% yeah. less than they were nearly 10 years ago, finding more oil, which yeah. makes sense, because all the reasons you just said, were, do we still need oil in 20 years? Mm. No. Drilling a well in the North Sea is a 40-year timeline project. I mean, you, you drill a well in now, and you've got 40 years to run out, well, if if you're only going to need it for 20 years, there's no point doing it. So why would you spend the money looking for it? But yeah. you know, the bull case for oil in that case is that well, we're still going to need oil for five or ten years whilst we transition, and therefore, if we're not spending much money looking for it today, that means that in five years' time there might be a pretty serious shortage. So again, you know, the, the cure for high prices in commodities is high prices. As a farmer's son, that's that's pretty clear. But the reason that normally the cure for high prices is high prices because the oil majors spend lots more money trying to find more oil mm. than what you're saying, mm. you know, doing deals, spending loads of money finding more oil at the top of the market, you get a load of supply comes onto the market when this oil starts flowing and then the price collapses. It's the same in every commodity. But this time around, if they're not spending more money looking for more oil and instead they're mm. protecting the balance sheet, they are buying back shares, they're going into renewables, etc., then there isn't going to be a supply response in the same way that there has been historically, which, again, underlines the kind of bull case on the medium medium term for oil. I mean, that's, it's a view. It's not the view. Again, it's not the view, but it's an interesting kind of thought yeah. process. Again, if we go back to where we started the question on Saudi driving this oil cup because it's come out of their supply, um, <coughs> you know, they are trying to keep this oil price high because they know there's an end game in terms of the amount of oil they have. Not in terms of the amount of oil, but in terms of the amount of demand. And that, again, is why they are trying to diversify away from probably the most extraordinary asset 
mm. that the world has seen, certainly in terms of oil. Um, so there, there's a massive game in terms of what OPEC are doing, what the majors are doing, and then what consumers are doing, and what, where the demand is. So mm. um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, lots my, of moving parts. Lots, lots of moving parts. My mm. sort of personal view is, you know, it's a, it's a fairly big assumption to think that the oil companies have, have suddenly got religion about capital discipline. We'll see, um, but maybe that's because I walked into my first job in 2011 at the end of the commodity super cycle, so maybe that's my bias. Um, just just moving on a related point, you know, we've talked about cash flows and things. Um, this shows you over the last 12 months that um, you know a, rid- a rudimentary measure of dividend investing, so a high yield, yield dividend strategy, has outperformed global stocks in general over the last 12 months. For the record, over the longer term, it's been absolutely walloped by um, by the stock market in general. That's just sector, right? Presumably that's high dividend yield index is going to be underweight tech, overweight commodities. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. But my sort of related question to that is, you know, when people, the conversation for someone that's looking for an income today is, as we've discussed, very mm. different mm. to what it was, you know, 18 to 24 months ago. How do you think about income generation, you know, is it I'm going to answer my own question here it doesn't make a huge amount of sense to just restrict yourself to one no. type of style of investing I don't think just because you get a dividend right I mean I think most of us have moved away from investing for income specifically and towards a total return approach mm. had you stuck to a dogmatic income mandate for the last 10 years you'd have missed Amazon you'd have missed Microsoft You'd have missed Netflix, Meta. You'd have missed the U.S. equity market because the yield is. I've been quite pleased to miss Meta for a period of time. <laughs> yeah, because the yield is two percent, whereas in the U.K. five six percent has been the norm. Mm. But the the capital value has gone nowhere in the U.K. market for a long period of time. Yeah. So mm. certainly in the last few years, we've tried to steer clients away from this kind of dogmatic. I want income. Just clip the coupons and just get something of the yield. Instead, my portfolio is worth. Hundred thousand pounds, and I want four thousand a year, and you take it out of the total return. So mm. it's capital plus income. But it, I mean, it, people today actually the, the, the landscape's a lot different as we talked about before because you can now get three and a half percent on gilts, so you can get five, five and a half on corporate bonds. You know, you can get property market is giving you know much more generous income, so you don't necessarily need to chase income the same way um, because the opportunities are more uh, are wider today than they have been for some years. Mm. I think that's. You know, a lot of our clients are asset rich, income poor because of the demographic of, of who they are um, and completely echo what JR said in terms of you know, if a client requires let's say £24,000 a year they just take a monthly standing order of £2,000 a month and it's up to us to generate it through income and growth um, and again that allows us to be more tax efficient as well because you know as we discussed in the last podcast the difference between buying a gilt with a 5% coupon and a gilt with you know 0.125% coupon although the actual income's not being produced um, from you know from a portfolio point of view the total return can be reduced it can be produced and we can absolutely um, create that for clients um, through either reducing you know, holdings when the time is right or um, or holding small amounts of cash to pay out to cover yeah. that monthly income. The best sort of argument I can sort of think of to come at it from the other way, there's almost 
types of behavioural element, the holding a high dividend paying stock, you know, you think of getting my five, six percent mm. per annum, you know, as long as you, who care not quite well, who cares what the share price does, but it can be easier to sit through periods of volatility. I mean that might be a simplistic way of looking at it, but there is an argument for that. But some there people is. do think like that. The downside is that it would have been great, but in twenty twenty the dividend quantum of dividends on the UK equity market fell 35% in 2020 yeah. because the oil majors all cancelled, the banks were all told to stop paying their dividends um, and it was probably as bad in 2008-9. Um, so you just you'd be slightly mindful that those dividends can go awry. Guaranteed. No, I mean yeah. Compass and Shell, you know, Shell cut the first time in 50 odd years, it's not back to the level it was. Compass cut because no one was using catering businesses because we were all stuck at home and not in the office. So there's loads of these businesses that you know, great businesses with a good sustainable dividend and growing dividend to all of a sudden the world changed. So, yeah, you just need to be slightly careful um, about that. But I get I get the behavioural side of it, definitely. Well, it's a simplistic argument, I think, from my perspective, mm. but mm. it's the best reason I can think of. You never want to narrow your investable universe. No, and you really I have to. Yeah, and I think, you know, you don't have to go too far back when if someone said they wanted income, you put together a mainly UK equity portfolio with some corporate bonds and some gilts and it would produce jumps at five and a half, six percent and, and yeah. you, you draw the income and that was it. But actually the growth of that portfolio was very limited and I think if you put inflation on it, actually the value, mm. if you weren't reinvesting those dividends, you're much better off on a total return basis. Yep. Yeah, speaking about the total return, um, this is something we've spoken about a couple of times. So just price return versus income so this is for MSCI world, world isn't it? yeah the um, red line is when you reinvest your dividends and the blue line is effectively not taking your dividends just just price um, and this is the it's same more stark in the, in the UK. UK yeah so for the UK I mean you can you see that the capital account. capital value has gone basically nowhere I mean it is up a little bit mm. over 20 years since 2000 the peak but not a lot but if you'd reinvested your dividends you got an 8x return haven't you since 94 um, it's quite extraordinary. Nice. Yeah, this to me is an advert for buying accumulation units and funds rather than income. Yeah, yeah. And in the old days, well, we don't really do it anymore. But you used to be able to. In the old for, days. In the old days, <laughs> you used to be able to opt for drips, didn't you, on your oh. within your nominees to have them all reinvested. Really? Could you? Yeah. A nominee? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. We used to. We used to be able to sign a form and get them, get them reinvested. Sounds but. like a CGT headache. Do you know it's always a nightmare when you get people who you know bought British Gas for oh, the nationalisation and they've got 3,000 share certificates with all the Lloyd's, <laughs> Lloyd's BP on the drip and they've got the first certificate yeah. which is 100 shares and then they've got 20 years worth of 3 shares, 4 shares, 5 shares, 6 shares <laughs> and they give you a stat like that and go, there you go. You know what we're gonna do with that? <laughs> Jack, I'll get someone else. Yeah. Jack. <laughs> like, oh, don't do the same. Um, I mean, this this in many ways is a very simplistic point, but you know, simplistic things, really basic things. Yeah. Reinvest your dividends, automate it if you can. Just gets you a far, 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 far better outcome than if you hadn't done that. Eighth yeah. one for the world compound. Compound. Compounding on your interest and your growth as well. Um, Bit of a bit of a left turn. Um, this is this is a story that's um, come up this week that's thoroughly depressing. Um, that I've been speaking to about uh, about with some colleagues in the office. Um, Craig Bellamy, current assistant manager mm. at Burnley, former professional footballer. If you haven't heard of him, international um, for Wales, of course. Um, 
has said that he's basically bankrupt, made a lot of money, I think it's fair to say, during his playing career, hasn't mm. gambled it, hasn't spent it uh, profligately, has just given it to the wrong people to invest. Um, mm. We had a look at uh, an article that we produced here as a firm, I think it was last year, um, 60% of Premier League footballers yeah, declared bankruptcy. Within five years of retiring. 60? Within five years, 60%. It's absolutely, oh, and this isn't, you know, this is the top top echelons. Of this isn't like you know, League One, League Two kind of no. underground years. This was Premier League. Wow. I mean, I don't know what the. First of all, this is just thoroughly depressing, and obviously, if you're dealing with someone and speaking to someone about your finances, please, please, please check that they're on the FCA register. Um. I mean, what behavioural lessons can we take from this, if any? Because by the signs of things this chap is trying to do very much the right thing and has just met the wrong people. Stumped and gone, you go. I think, I think that part of the problem is, you know, these young kids get such a huge amount of money at such an early age, when in reality there's no education around what money means. Everyone at the football club has a sports car, you know, a card to a certain bank. They're going out, you know, with their mates and buying tables and drinks for everyone and the rest of it. And I think it's getting used to that extraordinary amount of money. And it, I'm sure the opportunities come along of, or my, you know, I know a mate who's done this, he's bought this property in Dubai or done this property scheme or this film scheme or whatever else. And you can earn you know, two, three X, four X over a few years. And that's just an exciting thing to look at. If everyone else is doing it, they probably want to get involved as well. Whereas actually sitting down with a proper wealth manager or you know, financial planner or someone like us, and we, we look at historic returns and say, you know, for a balanced strategy, historically, over the last 15, 20 years, it has returned seven eight percent per annum that just doesn't look as exciting as what they potentially can do now we all know what the potential can do and often does do the learnings from it it's really difficult it's it's trying to get the right people in front of the sports people at an early age and, and almost doing an education around what can happen and actually what seven eight percent return a year on a compound basis can look like into retirement and potentially what that income what what those investments can generate as an income but let's put it bluntly if you're, if you're earning 100 grand a week as a footballer and you've done that for your playing career and suddenly you retire you're forced to retire you know most footballers don't have the chance the choice to retire they're forced to retire there's probably the mental side of what do I do with my life and they're used to spending money, which is going out, having fun. And mm. you, can, you can imagine how quickly it can disappear. And suddenly you're being told, oh, you've got to live off, let's say, five grand a week instead of your 100 grand a week. That's a really hard, I know it seems completely mind-boggling from where we sit and the normal person sits, but that's a massive lifestyle adjustment of not being able to take all your mates out the whole time. I, I presume a lot of your friends probably hangers on that aren't friends if you haven't got the money no, as well. Other, it's that's the other slightly dark element to it. 
there's lots of benefits from of 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 having money. Uh, there's plenty of downsides as well, and unscrupulous characters attracted mm. to um, probably is one of the major downsides. I would suggest. Mm. The problem is though, sat in a meeting room with Husey talking about gilts and Shell and Apple. It's just not very exciting. It's not a. It's not a proper entry buy, is it? No matter how exciting it can make the twenty twenty five gilts on. There's a global millennials fund I can think of that invests in Nike and. Brilliant. But I think like I don't think this is an investment strategy question. I just think that there are bad eggs out there, and mm. if you're doing your due diligence, people, you know, we sit in front of people and and talk a lot about you know the granularity of what we're going to do for them you know, you've got yeah it, it's you've got to be very careful with who you deal with i suppose is the is the exact i think i think you know in reality it's down to the clubs i think, it's down I think to the, they're better now i think the clubs have got yeah. more of a duty of care these days and i think i think things are better than they were even the, 10 years but ago it's the but agents but, as well yeah i mean how many players have agents that are their mate or whoever you know family member or whatever else in reality is earning a living from that playing mm. person and you know, I'm sure there's big commissions taken, there's slippage of funds, there's you know, all sorts. You know, if you invest in this property scheme, the, whoever's doing a property investment, there's a, there's a backhander to the agent or whatever else, it's, it's very difficult. Allegedly. Allegedly. Of course never happens. Um, but, but I th- yeah, I mean, lessons learned. It's good for him speaking out about it. and That's what I would say. Yes. And if you know, if more people do, and the message gets down to the young, younger guys at the clubs, and you know, they've got to watch out. They've got to be careful. It's their money. They've only got ten years to earn, and they've probably got they've got fifteen years to earn, and they've probably got fifty years to live off it. Yeah. So, you know, yes, you're earning two two and a half million pound a year gross, maybe, or if you're Cristiano Ronaldo, you're twenty million pound a year gross. Um, so, you, you know, if taking home half that, you need to your savings rate needs to be really high. Because you've got to you've got to have that capital available in whatever form. It doesn't need to be in Nike and Apple and yeah, Amazon sure. and Gills. Yeah. It can be in Robbie Robbie Fowler's got the biggest property portfolio. Yeah, he's put himself forward for the Northern Ireland job a couple is of it, times. Really? <laughs> One out of left field. Uh, there was um, I'm reading uh, Nick Majuli's Just Keep Buying at the moment, yeah. and the point that he makes: well, what's the point in investing? One of the major reasons for investing is converting your human capital into financial capital mm. and your human capital your earnings potential as a footballer yeah. is so yeah. so so small it can potentially be really tall mm. but you've got to really quickly convert that into financial as much financial capital, capital as you possibly because you're going to be mean, around for a while yeah, yeah i mean maybe the lessons are you've got 10 years of earnings power someone puts a calculation together which yeah. might be difficult of this is what you're going to earn if we take that figure and run it over 70 years add some inflation in, this is actually what you should be living off on a weekly basis. Yeah. And it will be a tiny number. But it's, it's almost someone very sensible sitting at the top, almost sitting there saying, look, this is reality. But it is, it's just education around, you know, around the club, around you know, different players. And, and it wouldn't take long for the senior players to explain it properly to the youth players and, and the rest of it. But I'm, I'm sure as we, you know, hopefully, that sixty percent starts to fall because it's incredibly sad. Um, yeah, the the, the the again again I don't think that's just limited to sport. You know, there's an assumption that if you're wealthy, you're financially literate, mm. and that's mm-hmm. not necessarily always the case. Yeah. and I think the improvement needs to come. I mean, I'm sure it's the same in terms as of financial literacy. I'm sure it's the same for you know the music industry or yeah. You know, whatever. Fine, yeah. they'll have royalties and the rest of it. But financial services. Financial services. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, I think there's improvements we can be made mm. across the board, mm. obviously, and, and, and regulation hopefully helps. Um, okay, let's move on from that one. Um, I think this is this is going to be a bit of a story for this year. Um, we had an environment last year where the economy pretty materially outperformed stock markets. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if you got the opposite over the common, well, during this year, basically. Um, stock market, as we discussed last time, I, is not the economy, and the stock, stock market can do very well in spite of in spite of a roaring economy or an indifferent one or a poorly performing economy, but I just thought this was interesting. So if you look at, this is, um, the, this is uh, the growth of the US economy over the last 10 years. Um, this is the growth of the US stock market over the same time period. Uh, mm-hmm. I haven't been able to overlay them over each other, but believe me, the stock market wallops the US economy. Mm-hmm. But it does. And um, this is the same, but for China. So you've got a Chinese stock market that, that pretty materially underperforms its economy. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the takeaway here, here is, if I'm honest, but <laughs> you know, stocks rely on one thing, and that's supply-demand for the shares. And earnings growth can help that but ultimately it comes down to investor appetite to invest in a company mm. and what, a fa- what, what are a finite amount of securities. Stock markets are forward looking aren't they? So what you tend to find is that at the end of an economic cycle, and I'm generalising massively here, when growth is at its strongest then the stock market is already looking across to the valley below because the economy is about to slow or go into recession yeah. and then when you're in the depths of the recession that's when the stock market normally bottoms mm. and starts roaring away. So March 2009, when the stock market bottomed in financial crisis, you know, the economy was still relatively strong up until that point. Actually, the economy suffered in 09, 10, 11, but the stock market had already fallen 50% into it, and it was across the valley on the other side coming out the other way. Yeah. So you know, usually the stock market will be able to look through and preempt what the economy is doing but I agree with you. It's it's you can try and run as many regressions as you want between the S and P five hundred and the US GDP, and you, you don't find much. No, no. And the reason why, as we all know, with China, why GDP is outperforming the stock market is because the stock market is full of quite a lot of state-owned enterprises that are not run for shareholders. They are run for employees, and they run essentially to create jobs <coughs> for the country. Um, and actually, they've been very long. They've been very bad long-term investments, mm. um, and and you know they're not run for profitability. And and there's big certainly with the Chinese benchmark. There's a big element. I, I don't know what the percentage is, but I think it's it might be thirty percent of the Chinese stock market is SOEs. Um, State-owned enterprises. Yes, yeah. which you know ultimately that massively affects the performance of the overall market. Uh, I wonder what this would look like if you took the SOEs out um, and whether it would be better. more in line. Yeah, I would expect it certainly to be to be better. Um, but you know, th- this is this is where entrepreneurs come in and, and you know, the, the stock market should outperform what GDP does because um, you, know, you can put leverage businesses that are growing more than exactly, the and you, you you know you have you have some. Some leverage in there. You have finance, you know, financing power. You have um, idea generation. I think you've just invested or invented quality growth investment there <laughs> <laughs> by GDP plus business. Well, there you are. <laughs> um, okay, last thing. Uh, just before we head on, um, thanks for sending this round. No, oh, yeah. Just before we've got Easter holidays, this might cheer people up a bit. 
The pound is back. Well, just like, just like the FTSE was back when we first started, <laughs> the pound is back. Are we going to become the death of um, death of everything? That's so the, honestly, yeah. mate, I guarantee anything we talk about. I wrote something, <laughs> I, I should have said client, I wrote why is gold not working, I think in October last year, and the gold price since then is just a straight <laughs> yeah. line up. Um, so just in time for the Easter holidays, if you're going away on holiday, this is probably good news. Pound, uh, yeah, pound's up pound's a bit. popping up a bit. So if you go into the US, you can now get a whole dollar of 25. Um, to uh, to Does pound. Heights. Well, I mean, it's funny, isn't it, that the, the Liz Truss, quasi quartering mini budget debacle, and the pound broke dollar ten, didn't it, to the downside, and got mm-hmm. down to one of four intraday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the the investment banks were falling over themselves to write about the pound breaking the buck, mm-hmm. and um, that was the leg. That was it. That's when you should have been loading up on sterling. Um, I mean, it, has we have we had good news in the UK in the last six months? No, what we have had is news that has been a lot less bad than we all thought it was going to be in October. I think it will, and it's an expectations game, right? Absolutely. Things are not great out there, albeit if you walk around London, it's pretty packed. Um, but it's just those worst mm. kind of worst fears, worst fears of October in terms of everyone's going to be bankrupt, living in cold houses, mm. and unemployment's mm. going mm. to the moon. It's just all that's just not happened, and here we go. The sterling's up twenty five percent since, mm. and that's broken. That's two hundred day. I mean, yeah, if that's what you're into. Look at you, you Charles. Uh, you're, you're, you're RSI on the bottom pane here is, uh, approaching overboard. Charting so. for dummies before yeah. I go up here. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just it, right? It's, time it's to book your holidays. Yeah, I mean, I... I but there's, it's there's difficult to know what to say. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is basically, if your currency is the share price of your economy, then things look... Certainly not as bad as they as they maybe did um, in in the dark old days of autumn, but um, this does have an impact, I suppose, on on some. This is relative to the dollar as well, though, right? So yeah, we're just slightly careful now. This is sterling relative to dollar. So we, the, I mean, the euro chart doesn't look dissimilar, but um, but actually it's a little bit more stable against the euro. But you can put it against the yen. You can put it against the basket. Um, it might paint a slightly different story because the reason that sterling popped to one twenty five yesterday was it was some weak data in the US. So the USD side of the ledger was a little bit weaker than people had anticipated. Therefore, if there's no news out of the UK and the news is worse out of the US, you expect the dollar to fall and the pound to rise. Potentially rates might have to be high slightly further in the UK than the US. There's a little bit of that as well, which hopefully not. Yeah, I'm sick. That's alright. It was uh, cancelled as well. It was off today. <laughs> Someone's going to have to teach me how to work this. They're telling you it's time to wrap it up. Um, who who you got the masters? Um, um, and there is a right God. answer. Rory, obviously. Obviously. The main man. I mean, it would bring me so much joy if Rory won it. And so I see you wearing your Masters green jumper. Very yeah, good. I know. I said, well, someone tried to pitch me Brooks Kepka fifty to one today, but out of principle, I'm not going to back him. Um, what are you up to over the over the long weekend, Hughesy? We have some quite a few Easter egg hunts with the kids. <laughs> Love that. Um, <laughs> we all get bets on that. <laughs> we, we say go, and I'm involved as well, so I'm going to take all the kids chocolate eggs. Oh, but no, they they love it. They're they're three and well, coming up. Is, it, is there a particular right. Easter egg as a fan favourite in the Hughes household? Kinder, Kinder. Yeah, just make the toys. Yeah, no, it's good. Things are going well over there. Clearly. <laughs> um, boys, that was fun. Thank you very much. Good. Good. Yeah. See you next good time. Good job. Thanks very um, much. Thank you for joining us, folks. Um, as ever, submit any questions that you've got to david.henry at culturechiviet.com. 
Have a great time over the long weekend, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.